Thank you, Ensemble. You know, worship is something, I feel like, whoever's leading, it's uh, something that engages our senses. It's something that leads us as we worship God to engage what we think and also what we feel. And this morning, I want to talk to you a little about uh, how, how our feelings have an impact in not only how we worship, but really how we understand God. Uh, we recognize what God wants for us and how we even strive to live as a result. Uh, I want to consider the role that feelings play in our overall commitment to God. And so the stereotypical question that's asked uh, by psychologists or therapists uh, in movies and on television, anytime someone shares something that's caused them grief or anxiety or frustration is, and how does that make you feel? I mean, that's what we ask, right? And then, and, you know, if it's the stereotypical counselor, psychologist, they never really offer any feedback. They, the person drolls on about how they feel, and then the psychologist will say, and how does that make you feel? And I think that that's sort of become a stereotype because uh, we have really emphasized the role of feelings in our, our current culture and recent years and recent decades. I think one of the things Michelle and I learned from somewhere, and I can't remember if it was premarital counseling or Dr. Phil, <laughs> it was one of those things, is, is the importance when we're having a conversation, not an argument, a conversation, because we never argue, uh, but the importance of, of saying uh, how, using what was called I statements. You heard that? It's in pop psychology. Uh, rather than saying to your spouse, you always treat me like trash. Say something like, when you do whatever you interpret them as doing is treating you like trash, don't listen to me or ignore me. Whenever you do this, it makes me feel like this. Or I feel, if you're going to put it in an I statement, I feel sad or upset whenever you do this. And, and that's not a fix-all to all relationship problems, obviously. But at the very least, it avoids that knee-jerk reaction that you might get when you turn to your spouse and say, you always treat me like trash, right? It frames things in a way that you understand a little better. On the opposite problem, the, the, the thing that we can get into is that when you start talking about feelings, they're, they're subjective, right? And so if you start using feeling statements to describe things that are well, may have some objectivity to them, you can get into trouble. Because it's one thing to say, uh, I feel like you might be upset at me. That's, that's kind of subjective. The person may or may not be upset. But it's another thing to say, uh, I feel like you need to do this or that. I feel like you need to wash the dishes more. Well, that's a feeling. And that may or may not be true. The other person may wash the dishes a whole lot. So there's some subjectivity there. And if you bring it to its logical end, if you really want to you know, kind of illustrate that point, you could say to your boss, well, I feel like I need to take a vacation. And your boss might say, go ahead. I feel like you need another job. And so that's, you know, at this point we've... we've Pushed it so far to where it's kind of ridiculous. But, but you get the idea that just because you feel a certain way doesn't necessarily mean you get to act a certain way. Uh, imagine a lawyer talking to a jury and, and saying, well, 
I just feel like I just feel like the guy's guilty. And the lawyer might feel that way. They might have a strong hunch, but but it has to be something else. The feeling can be there, but you have to have something else to go with it. And and so how does that connect to our relationship with God? Well, I mentioned in recent decades we've really sort of emphasized feelings, and feelings are good to emphasize, but but we've overemphasized them to some extent. Even way I say way back, but for some of you it's, it's way back. Uh, even in the '90s. And this began to sort of infiltrate Christianity and our ideas and thoughts about God. And a guy wrote a book called Conversations with God, 1996. And really, it's not a Christian book. I think it made it into a few Christian bookstores before being yanked off the shelves. But it sold 2.5 million copies. And it's, it's these conversations that he claims to have had with God. And one of the conversations goes something like this. The guy says... Uh, or God says to the guy, I can't tell you my truth until you stop telling me your truth. And, and, and the guy says, well, well, my truth comes from you, God. And, and God says, well, well, who told you that? And he said, well, ministers and uh, priests and rabbis and, and even the Bible. And God says, well, well, those sources aren't authoritative. And the guy responds back to God, well, well what is authoritative? And this is God in this guy's conversation, supposedly. He says, listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. He says, whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or reading your books, forget those words. And I don't think any of you here that's, that's a Christian would, would go to the point to say that I would elevate my thoughts or my feelings above God or, or above Scripture. But I think that extreme shows us, and, and, and the, the people that went and bought that book and, and were uh, really, really in, like that book, it shows us the tendency to want to do that. And all people, whether we're committed Christians or not. And so we're, as we continue our series, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you want to turn there. And I think we're getting to a point in, in Saul's life where... What he feels begins to play a role in how he carries out what God has given him to do. And, and what we're going to see in today's passage is that uh, really when he puts more stock in his feelings and less stock in who God says he is and what he's supposed to do for God, he begins going down the road that we ultimately know is going to end in destruction for him. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. It will also be on the screen. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear, so all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days in the time, set by, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling, assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord God gave you. And if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul felt compelled, we just read in verse 12, to offer a burnt offering that he knew he, he didn't have authority to offer. That wasn't his to offer. And his mistake wasn't feeling compelled to do that as much as it was acting on that and, and doing that. And so like Saul, when we only follow our feelings, like Saul really in the Israelites, we become susceptible to fear. Fear is, and it's interesting to note how fear changes as, as we age. And you can imagine the fears that Saul had before he was king versus after he became king. Now think about the fears that I had as, as a little kid versus the fears I have now. I lived uh, immediately next door to my grandmother for a while. And, and we had the houses on our little dead end street were not that far apart. And so we had this little path that we walked from, from our house to her house. And it was just, it was worn. You could see where people walked. And uh, I just wore that path out back and forth all the time. And I remember sometimes during the summer, during months like this, uh, when I didn't have a lot to do the next day, uh, I had, a, I had a, a fun grandmother. And she let me stay at her house and we'd stay up watching movies when we could, I could sleep in late the next day. Of course, that would put me traipsing home late at, at midnight or something. And I would get about half, I remember getting halfway between her house and my house. And, and you know, this was at 9 or 10. You know, I was, I was an older kid at that point. But something just sort of snapping in my mind in the darkness and, and thinking, oh gosh, what if someone's following me? It was a ridiculous thought. But, you know, you've had the, you remember just being in the dark. There, there weren't a lot of lights out. And it was late. Or, or what if that boogeyman that I saw in that movie is behind me? And I would take off running from that midpoint and just hightail it in, in, into my house. And if by chance my parents were still awake, they would be sitting there and sitting on the couch. And they'd look at me and they'd kind of grin. And they'd say, well, what are, you, what are you running so fast for? And out of breath, I'd say, I just wanted to run. <laughs> and today, I, I'm not afraid of the dark. My kids are, but I'm not. But I have grown-up fears. You know, I'm afraid of losing my possessions. I'm afraid of not being able to take care of my family, of, of something tragic happening to, to one of them. You know, both those fears, whether one's realistic or not, both those fears can cause us to act in certain ways. And no matter how scared I was of the dark... It was dumb for me to take off running like I did because several times I almost remember slipping and, and falling. It wasn't a very smart decision. But that was a, a dumb fear to have. But, but the fears I have, you know, we kind of justify our fears. I've grown up fears. You know, you should be concerned about your kids. You should be concerned about having enough money. 
But if those fears control the way you act instead of God, you can find yourself hoarding things. You can find yourself being a helicopter parent. You can find yourself doing all kinds of negative things out of good intentions because of those good fears that you have. And I don't doubt the realistic nature of the people's fear when Saul really did what they should have expected him to do. They got a king because they wanted protection against the armies of the neighboring peoples. And so he attacks the Philistines. And probably they didn't expect him to attack the Philistines as much as they just hoped that he would defend them if they needed to, if the time came when they attacked. But he did. And, and all throughout Israel's history, it just didn't seem to matter who was their leader or, or uh, what the odds were when it comes to the Philistines. They were just always afraid of them. At any rate, God gave them Saul for this very purpose. And, and we see in the next slide, in uh, verses 6 and 7 that we read, it says, When the Israelites saw the situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, there's some irony there. Even though after the Israelites settled around the Jordan area, some settled on one side and some on the other, and, and that was okay. But the crossing the Jordan was sort of this metaphorical sort of point for them. It was, it was them. It demonstrated that they got to the point that God was leading them and God was giving them this land. And rather seeing them move forward, rather than seeing, seeing them take possession and defeat the enemies that they had, we read here, they're actually going backwards. They're going back across the Jordan. And it told us in verse 5 that the fear that provoked them was because the Philistines' army was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You remember that phrase, don't you? You remember that phrase. That's Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. You're going to have children as numerous as the sands on the seashore. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. The enemies aren't supposed to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. That's supposed to be God's people. And so, I guess understandably, they're, they're afraid. But God had brought them out of slavery, across the Red Sea. He brought them through the desert, into the Promised Land. He, they'd seen Him make the walls of Jericho fall. They'd, they'd seen Him make the sun stand still. He'd help Israel over, overcome insurmountable odds against their enemies. And then here they are in this moment because of what they feel, because of their fear. And it dictates how they respond. And all of us respond differently to fear. Some of us maybe, like the Israelites, we, we run and hide and maybe we just become paralyzed. And, and we don't act and we don't do anything and, and we're afraid. Others... Maybe, like we read about what Saul does a little bit later in the passage, and, and we try and take the matter in our own hands, and we try and help God, and we try and micromanage, and we try and do too much. It doesn't matter what extreme you fall to, but fear is controlling us, and that's what happens when fear controls us. Even if they're grown-up fears, even if they're fears that are understandable, even if they're fears that you can justify. God never intended those fears to control our lives. But because feelings of fear can take hold of us, they also lead us to act in certain ways. So when we only follow our feelings, we become susceptible to fear and then to compulsion. 
The things that that fear can, can lead us to do, can, can, can lead us to do really apart from God. Now, there are some things that we're compelled to do that may be, may be not really connected to fear. When my family and I go on a road trip, uh, we'll be on some farm-to-market road in the middle of nowhere, and, and I will hear from one of the kids, I've got to go potty now! Now, that's a compulsion that is, that is slightly motivated by a feeling, but really it's just a biological response, isn't it? And so you can be sure that, that even if we're in the middle of nowhere, even if there's not a restroom in sight, we will do what we need to do and try and take care of that. We'll assess the situation. Well, how bad do you have to go? I mean, do we just need to pull over and find a tree? Well, whatever we need to do, we, we, we take care of it. I pay attention to that because I know it's not just based on feelings. But then, once we finally do stop at a gas station uh, because we need you know, to go to the bathroom or we need to get gas or whatever. There is this compulsion right when they walk into the, the gas station to want everything that's there and to be starving. Even if they just had a chicken nugget Happy Meal, you know, to walk in there, oh, I want a hot dog, I want a snack cake, I want a donut, I want to wash it all down with a Mountain Dew. And Are they really hungry? Probably not. Probably they've been sitting in the car for five hours and they're just stir crazy and they just want something to do. They just feel tired, worn out, and it's motivated by, by their feelings. And it's less something that, that just needs to be taken care of, needs to be dealt with. I think the compulsion of Saul that we just read about is more marked by feelings than it is what he knows about God. And it wasn't because the Philistines were responding to his attack that he ordered through Jonathan. It's not just that they're responding. And it's not just that they have all this equipment and all the chariots and all the horses. It's the response of even his own army. They're, they're hiding. They're going backwards, as we said a minute ago. And he was picked to be the king for the express purpose of protecting these people. And so he's looking at this and saying, gosh, I'm not even doing what I was supposed to be the king to do. And so he has this moment and he had this, he had this one hope that was supposed to, maybe he was holding out for. Samuel told him in, in seven days he's going to meet him and, and he was going to have, uh, you know, what we might call it an installation ceremony. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, he was going to perform sacrifices and offerings and he's going to tell him what to do. It was going to just sort of be his inauguration, you might call it, as, as a leader. And so he waits the seven days in the midst of this battle, and it doesn't happen. And, and, and he wouldn't have even known, probably, as the king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a judge. He probably wouldn't have even known what all was supposed to happen in that ceremony or what all Samuel had planned. But what he did know was that people liked the Philistines, people like other neighboring armies. Before they went into battle, they sacrificed to their God. That's what they did. And, and, and Israel made him the king so they'd be like other nations. And so we read verse 12. I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. We'll talk in a minute why that feeling and why doing that was a bad idea. But... But I think it's important for a moment just to camp out on this, this thought that, that he did that because of what 
he felt. He felt this compulsion to do something that he should have known was not what God wanted him to do. He felt fear. He felt probably doubt. He probably felt inadequacy. In short, he felt all the stuff that you and I feel all the time. I mean, those are just, that's just life, isn't it? You feel that kind of stuff all the time. And the thing is, most of us, life gives most of us really more than, than we can really deal with on our own. I mean, we do feel overwhelmed. We do feel scared. We do feel uncertain all the time, regardless of, of, of what's on our plate. That's just part of life. But the thing is, uh, we, we take those feelings, and they can either dictate how we feel, or we can turn to God and say, this is what we know in spite of these feelings. I think if you look at, at the things you struggle with, at the feelings that you have, and, and the tendencies sometimes that you have, and, and what's causing that, if nothing else, that can get you to stop and think, well, well is this something I'm, I need to do for God? Is this something that is a good idea? Is this just something I'm feeling? Whether it's a, a struggle you have about talking about people, talking about people behind their back. Well, what is it about the way you feel that makes you do that? What is it about your own securities, about your own inadequacies? If you struggle with lust, and I think it's important to consider, well, what is it about yourself? Well, what are you trying to feel with that, with that sin? If you struggle with just being angry a lot, what's causing, what's the, the core of that frustration? What is it that, that's just not right that makes you consistently feel that. And if we allow those feelings to go unchecked, as, as they did for Saul, they lead us to disobedience. So when we only follow our feelings, we become susceptible, ultimately, to being disobedient to God. And so why was Samuel, or, or Saul's sin so disobedient? Other than the fact that he was just doing something that wasn't his job. I mean, he was a king. He wasn't supposed to, to be doing that, really. He claimed he was motivated in verse 12 to seek God's favor. And when he claims that, he's ignoring the fact that nowhere in the Old Testament does it say in order to just approach God, you have to perform a sacrifice. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament. There are certain sacrifices prescribed for certain things. But just to approach God, just to approach Him and make a request for His favor, you, the, you don't have to perform a sacrifice. Verse 13 on the next slide says, You've done a foolish thing. This is his uh, sort of conversation with Samuel about the whole deal. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've kept the command the Lord your God gave you. <clears throat> you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, sorry. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. What a tragic, what a tragic sort of epitaph to go, uh, to kind of put on him. As we look and ultimately know what happened to him. That's a sobering warning, I think, that, that warns us of the effect of, of disobedience. Because of the way that we feel. I heard a story about, about a man. Not a true story. It's a little antidote. It's about a man that walked into a restaurant and he ordered a Coke. So the waiter goes and gets him a Coke. Hands it to the man. And immediately after receiving it, he takes the Coke and he throws it in the waiter's face. And the waiter, all indignant and upset, says, why did you do that? And the man responds, well, I just have, I have this, this feeling. That I just, when someone serves me a Coke, I just can't help. I just want to throw it in their face. It's, I just have this strong feeling to want to do that. But, 
But just give me another chance. I don't, I don't think I'll do it again if you give me one more chance. And so waiter goes and gets him another Coke. And he gives it back, brings it back to him. And immediately he throws the Coke in the waiter's face again. And, and frustrated, the waiter said, look, it's all over my shirt. Now I have to change my shirt. And he apologizes profusely. He says, I'm, I'm so sorry. I've, I've just got this, this strong compulsion, this feeling to do that. And, and I know I need help. I tell you what, I'm going to go and, and I'm going I'm to get help. So a month later, the man comes back in the restaurant. And, and, and the waiter recognizes him. And he says, I, I remember you. And he goes, no, I, I promise. I've, 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 I went and, and I spoke to uh, a psychologist. And we met for, for several intensive sessions. And, and I, let me tell you, I'm, I'm cured of my feelings. He says, okay, and he sits down and he orders a coat. Waiter goes and gets him a coat, brings it back to the man, and immediately he throws it in the waiter's face again. And he said, I thought you said you were cured. And he said, I said I'm not cured of, of, of the compulsion, but I am cured of feeling guilty about it. And that's ridiculous. That's, that's a ridiculous goofy thing that no one would ever say or do, but it's effectively what we do when we justify disobedience because of the way that we feel. And so the question that that leads us to this morning is, what should we follow? I've told you all so, so far what not to follow. So the question is, what should we follow? And the answer is in the next verse, uh, in verse 14. It's in Samuel's response to Saul. He tells him, but, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. I think one of the reasons that we fail to seek, to seek God's heart, in other words, what God wants for people, is because we forget what that even is. We forget that that's actually a good thing. We think, well, God just wants me to be obedient and obey all the rules and be a, you know, kind of a boring person. But when you think about what God's heart is for people, from, from the whole perspective of Scripture, God, God has a heart where He really wants our very best. There's this passage in, in the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's, Emily, it's, the, it's the, the Bible I've shared with you that I've read to Emily and Luke. And, and it gets to Genesis 3. And it has this conversation, just, just like in your Bible, between the, the, the serpent, the snake, and, and Adam and Eve. And... And, and the way it words it, you, you'll recognize it, but it, it's worded in, in a little bit different language. But I want to read it to you because it really puts in perspective, I think, what God's heart is and what God wants for people and what we lose when we turn to sin. This is Genesis 3 from the perspective of this children's Bible. It says, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you, the serpent whispered? If he does, why won't you let... Why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sucked down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. And you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some and Adam ate some too. And then a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. God's heart reflects his love for us. And it is in response to that love, not our feelings that change 
from day to day that we seek to live a life that is holy and pure and worthy in His sight. In the Christian tradition, you know, in our world, we've said, well, you can't help how you feel about stuff. And to an extent, you can't. If something makes you mad, it's going to make you mad. But, but in the, the Christian tradition, we talk about training our thoughts, training our, our feelings. Remember the Apostle Paul talks about setting our minds on Christ, having the same mind as Christ. Augustine talked about ordering our affections, ordering our feelings, ordering our loves. I like how Brennan Manning talks about it. He says, if you want to check kind of where you're at with God, ask yourself two questions. Ask yourself, number one, what makes you happy? I mean, what's the last thing that just made you happy? Was it something connected to God, to your connection with maybe your, your, your church or the family of God? Was it something to do with the fact that, 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 that you learned something new or you're growing in something that God is doing in your life? Or was it just this temporal thing? It had to do with money. It had to do with a promotion. He says, ask yourself, what made you sad? Was it grief over a sin? Was it grief over not being, not loving like God loves you? Not being able to live up to, to, to the standard God sets all the time? I mean, that's, that's a sad thing. But, but if that is what is grieving you, that at least shows that you're concerned about the things of God. Or was it just the fact that someone disrespected you or upset you or was not nice to you. I don't give you that test to make you feel bad because none of us are going to end up doing perfectly on it. But the more that we follow after God's heart over our carnal feelings, the more our feelings reflect His love for us.